for his kingdom. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16. This is continuing on in our series in Romans. The last couple of weeks we have really seen um, Paul's main theme in the book of Romans is that there is a righteousness that comes by faith. There's a righteousness from God that's apart from works, and it comes by faith. And then last week we saw that, that most of mankind, all of mankind, really is in some form or another in a denial of God. And so those who practice wickedness, and primarily last week was looking primarily at the Gentiles, which includes all of us, by the way, um, the Gentiles are guilty of God's wrath. And this week, we'll be looking at people who are moral, people who are religious. And specifically, he was talking to the Jews as the inference, but it applies to everybody who's moral, everybody who's religious. And so if you're sitting here today, in some way, you claim to be moral or religious. So this applies to each and every one of us. Turn your Bibles to Romans 2, 1 through 16. This is God's holy, inspired word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, O you who judge those who do such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, when we hear words like this, We become aware of our own unrighteousness. God, when we hear words like this, we are exposed. We see our need for you. God, I pray for each and everyone here that we would see a greater need for you. That we would realize that no morality, 
No good, clean living, no righteousness, no law-keeping, no law-abiding, no philanthropy will save us. God, I pray that we would not put any hope in ourselves or any righteousness that we think we have. Lord, I pray that you would would strip away self-righteousness from us, Lord, and that we would put all hope in your righteousness by faith. God, I pray that you would just make your word alive to us this morning that you would give me grace as I preach, that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would fill each and every person here with your spirit as they listen, that you would enable us to hear from you because, God, that only comes by your spirit. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine that you're walking through the woods. Um, My family and I, we like to go on hikes to the woods, and this has actually happened before, at least part of this has happened before. Imagine that you're walking through the woods, and you come upon the carcass of a deer, and it's blocking your path, and you can't go any further. And that might gross some of you out, just a fair warning. Um, You're walking through the woods, you come along this carcass of a deer, it's blocking the path, and as you get closer, you realize that it's just kind of roiling with maggots. And so you hold your nose, you back up, and you kind of you say gross, and you skirt around this deer carcass that's kind of roiling with maggots. And as you go around this carcass, you hear this, this voice, kind of, kind of small voice, cry out and says, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And you say, whoa, 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 wait, did I just hear something? And you stop, and you, you kind of listen. And then you're like, what? And you look around, and then you look down on the carcass, and you hear this voice again says, I'm not that bad. And then you think, I must be going crazy. And so you lean a little closer to to hear what in the world. Where's this voice coming from? I'm not that bad. And you hear it again. And the the voice sounds a little indignant. And then you lean really close, get down your hands and knees, and you hold your nose, and you look in, and you realize that as you said, yuck, and you held your nose, and you went around this carcass, that one of the little maggots got offended. And this little maggot's standing up. I don't know how a maggot stands up, but he's up on his whatever. And he's saying, I'm really not that bad. And you say, pardon me? Um, What's going on? And he says, well, you think we're really gross, but I'm not that gross. You see, I'm I'm up here on the shoulder, and I'm eating rotten shoulder meat, and the shoulder meat's not bad. I'm not like the other end. I'm not like those maggots down at the other end that are eating, you know, you know what? And you say, well, um, I'm sorry, and you try to hold back a laugh, and you try to have a serious look on your face if you really respect maggots. And, and you say, well, I'm sorry, but you're a maggot and you're eating rotten flesh. It doesn't exactly matter which end of the deer your rotten flesh is coming from. It's all rotten. What you're engaging in, what you're eating, what you're consuming, it's bad. And thanks, but no thanks. I'm not okay with that. And so you go by anyway. And, you know, like a maggot... We can, who's eating rotten flesh, we can all be prone to making comparisons in relation to other people who are feasting on the same wickedness, who are engaged in the same rottenness, who are eating and indulging sin. There might be different degrees of sin, and so you're more aware. I'm not like those people. They're really sinful. They're really, really bad. And so the Apostle Paul is speaking to each and every person here, or each and every person who the Bible addresses that is tempted to think that you're not as bad as somebody else. That you're much better off because the rot that you engage in is not as bad as someone else's rot. The Apostle Paul, back in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he made 
a glorious statement. He said that the gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in verses 18 to 29, we looked at last week, he goes on to explain those who are not living by faith, those who are not trusting in religion, but really those who are indulging in wickedness and in who wicked men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to explain those people deny God. They don't give thanks to God. They don't acknowledge God. They're idolaters. And these kinds of people, Paul says, are, are filled with all kinds of unrighteousness and wickedness. And then he lists a whole bunch. If you want to flip back in your Bible in verses 29 to 31, you can see in Romans chapter 1 that he lists a whole bunch of different types of unrighteousness. And, and Paul's reader, or this reader that Paul is picturing, this hypothetical reader, because Paul has really got a diatribe in mind. He is He's coming up with an argument against what he's saying and he's proposing it, but it really appeals to all of us because a lot of us might say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm I'm not an adulterer. I've not done those things. I I don't like those things. I don't approve of them. So Paul moves on to answer the objections of the moral person, the religious person, the, the Jew, the person who puts their trust in keeping the law. And what he's going to show us, the main idea of these verses, is that self-righteous, moral, religious people need the gospel too. Maybe last week you were thinking, I'm really not that bad. I'm not that, I'm not that bad off. I don't do those things. I'm really okay. Or maybe you're sitting here today, and, or maybe you sat here last week, and you think, you know what? I'm not a Christian, and I don't necessarily buy into all those things. I'm still not sure about all of this, but you know what? I, I, I think God's okay with me. I think that I've lived a, a basically moral life, that I do good things, and I, I live by the golden rule, which, by the way, comes from the Bible, but forget that for a moment. I do unto others as I would have them do to me, and I'm trying to be kind. You know, I, 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 I go on Doctors Without Borders or whatever that is, you know, and I go and try to help people. I give to the Red Cross. And Paul wants to make sure that religious people, that moral people, that Self-righteous people understand that it's not just outwardly wicked, outwardly idolatrous, outwardly irreligious people who warrant God's wrath. It's not just those who deny God's existence and try to convince themselves they don't know better that deserve the wrath of God. He's saying that religious people, and, and just stop for a moment and pay attention, religious people, that's, that's you and me, If we are trusting in religion alone, if we're trusting in our ability to do what's right and good, moral people, if you live by your own good moral ethical code and you think you're doing okay, this is speaking to you. It's also speaking to you who think that you're better than somebody else. And he explains that moral, self-righteous, religious people need the gospel too. And And a good Jew might think, well, why is that? I keep God's laws. I, I don't really think I need Jesus. I'm doing okay on my own. And, and maybe some here might think, you know what? I, I live a good life. Things are going well for me. I don't have any real hard needs. Um, I, I reach out to inner city poor or whatever you think um, redeems you. And I do good works and I try to, to be good to other people. So I don't really need God. This verses, these verses speak to you. Maybe you think I'm, I'm fine. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm pretty happy. 
God must be okay with me because things are going pretty well. You know, I live by karma. And Paul says, no. He says, moral people, self-righteous people are just as guilty. In verses one through five, we see really this idea that, that Paul summarizes. And he says, moral people need the gospel because moral people are just as guilty. Moral people are just as guilty. You know, in another place, Paul says that all your righteousness is like filthy rags. And now maybe you're thinking, hang on, why in the world do we need to hear more about bad news? You know, what do we talk about in this church? We talk about bad news so much. You know, all, after all, last week's message was full of God's wrath, and it was talking about the wickedness of God. And by the way, we're, we're not just deliberately focusing only on the wrath of God. That's what Romans, it begins to preach, and we're going to get to this more and more good news in Romans. We're going to preach through the whole book of Romans. But where Scripture emphasizes the wrath of God and the bad news, we need to make sure we do too. Because there's no way for us to understand the good news and to appreciate the good news and to embrace the good news and rejoice the good news and to live in the good of the good news unless we understand, truly understand the wrath that we deserve. Imagine that you have stage four cancer. You go to the doctor for a checkup. You don't know that you have cancer. You go to the doctor for a checkup. The doctor discovers you have stage four cancer. And then the doctor doesn't tell you. He just says, hey, your checkup went really well. And um, you're, you're looking pretty healthy right now. Things are looking pretty good. Things are okay for you. But you know what? I've got some good news for you. You can take this stuff called radiation and chemotherapy, and you can go through these treatments, and that'll make you even better. And you're like, um, no thanks. I know some people who went through radiation or chemotherapy. They lost their hair. They did really awful. It almost killed them. I don't need that kind of good news. The good news from the doctor about there's hope or treatment wouldn't be good at all. That you would, you would decline it. You would turn it down thinking you're okay. The same is true if, not only if you're a wicked person, you know it. If you are living on death road, you need good news. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking that your morals will save you, you need the good news and you need to know why. You've got stage four cancer of the soul and you need a radical intervention. Once you know the bad news, you can at least understand your need for the good news. Now, you might be numb. You might not be affected by that. But I hope that, that God speaks to you this morning and shows you your need. You might be thinking, I've never committed a heinous sin. I've never really done anything bad. I've, never, I've been basically good. Well, let me caution you. The Apostle Paul is telling you, if you feel like you are basically good and you feel like, oh, I've never really done anything bad. I'm not like that. I'm not like those maggots on the other end. Paul's saying you're in danger. You're in danger, you're deceived. You know, it's easy to think that you don't really need God. It's easy to think you're okay without him. And part of God's judgment is actually turning you over to those thoughts when you continue to not acknowledge him, to deny him, to not give him thanks as we saw last week. And sometimes we can get to the place where we believe that we're not guilty of the sins that others commit. And that probably was the case for a lot of Jews in Paul's day. They were probably thinking, well, we don't really do those things, Paul. You talked about this huge, long list of stuff, and, and you know what? We, we don't do those things. And Paul says, well, if you think you don't do those things, then you're really deceived. If you think that you're not sinful, you think you don't deserve judgment, think again. You practice the very same things. And you're like, how, Paul? How do I do that? 
Maybe you can say, Paul, I agree. Murderers, they, they need to go to hell. Or they deserve punishment of some sort. Maybe you're, you're a merciful soul, and that's good. And you say, well, murderers, they at least need to be reformed. But they do deserve some form of judgment. And you know what? People who steal from other people, they're selfish, and that's bad. But I don't steal, and I don't murder. I'm okay. And maybe you think, you know, Paul, that list you gave it doesn't apply to me. I don't do those things. Maybe you think, you know what, Paul? I'm not filled with all manner of unrighteousness, and I'm not filled with all manner of evil or covetousness or malice. I'm not full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Maybe you say that I'm not a gossip. But you're deceiving yourself because you're judging gossips, and yet you excuse yourself and you say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not a gossip. I'm just concerned about people. I'm sharing my concerns. I'm not a slanderer. I'm just discerning. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just evaluating what people say. I'm evaluating people's character. I'm just discerning I'm not critical, I'm just, um, God's given me a gift of discernment. I'm not judgmental. I'm not, a, I'm not a hater of God, I just don't love him completely, but he understands. I don't look down on people, I'm just a realist. Not everybody's as good as me. <laughs> I'm not haughty, I'm not boastful, I'm not proud. Maybe you say those things, I just tell the truth. I'm not being proud, I'm just, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just being honest. I'm not looking down on other people. Maybe you say, I wasn't that disobedient to my parents. Really, my parents say I was basically a good kid. I, didn't really, I basically obeyed. I really wasn't that disobedient to my parents. I'm, I'm not included in that list, Paul. I, I'm not faithless. I, I, I just don't always do what I say, but there's always a good reason. I'm a moralist. I, I always have a good reason for why I do what I do. And you can understand there's an excuse for me, not for them, but for me. Maybe you've had those thoughts. You know, I don't lack mercy. I'm not heartless. I'm just, I'm just in a hurry when I walk by homeless people sometimes. Sometimes I do give them some money, but other times I don't because I'm just in a hurry. It's not because I'm, I'm, I'm merciless to them. I'm just making sure they don't spend it on something bad. <laughs> Maybe you make excuses for your heart. You know, I can't always be giving or there'll be nothing for what I want. You know, I, you know Jesus said that the poor will always be with us, right? I'm not unmerciful. You know, I, got, I know God's judgment is, is right for really bad people, but I don't think I'm really bad. And you know what, whether you admit it or not, a lot of us can actually feel that way. A lot of us can think that way. And you know what that does? It robs us of seeing the good news. It robs us, even if you're a believer, you can get lulled into thinking that you're okay on your own. You know what that does? That robs you of joy. It robs you of hope. It robs you of life. In verse 3, Paul effectively, effectively says, really? You think you have an excuse? He says, you have no excuse, every one of you judges. Because you judge people for their sins, and you're very guilty of the same exact kind of things. Maybe you haven't committed murder, but have you ever, ever hated anybody? You know what the standard is? Jesus said in Matthew 5 that anybody who's angry with his brother, you ever been angry with your brother or sister or fellow church member, friend, neighbor? He says, anybody who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, be liable to the council. Whoever says you a fool, be liable to the hell of fire. You ever called somebody a fool? You know, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus also talks about adultery. And he says, you know what? Um, I, I came to fulfill the law, but you're just as guilty of adultery in your heart when you look on a woman lustfully as if you had done the act itself. So maybe you don't physically commit adultery, and that's good, but 
Do you look at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully? Do you get angry? He says, your own judging condemns you, is what Paul says. You know, you're, you're just as guilty. of You judge gossip and slander. You judge all those evil things. You judge being proud and arrogant. But if you're really honest, you are too. You're ungrateful to God and you don't acknowledge Him in all you do. You're just as deserving. You might have the Bible even. You might understand and know the Bible. You might have been raised in a good Christian home and you might have good Christian parents and you might have a good Christian lifestyle on the outside and yet be just as guilty apart from trusting in Jesus. And Paul's saying, do you just presume? Because some people, you know what they think? They think, well, you know, things are going pretty well for me. They assume that God's kindness means that God's happy with them, just like it's wrong to presume that, it, that if things don't go well, that God's unhappy. It's just as wrong to think, if things go well with me, then God must be happy with me. If everything is great and, and I'm being blessed, whatever that means, you know those hashtag blessed? <laughs> if everything's great with me and I'm going, things are going well and I'm doing good in my job and I'm you know, I'm living a good life, then God must be happy with me. And he says, don't kid yourself. God's kindness is actually meant to lead you to repentance, not to lead you to think that he's okay with you. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It could mean that God's allowing you to pursue your own desires and you're hardening your heart towards repentance to the point where you don't feel the need and you think that you can just continue to live like you want. You know, I, I don't know how many people here might have, don't raise your hands because if you know people who are in your family, I don't want you to condemn them, but how many people here grew up in a legalistic environment of some kind? Or maybe grew up with all kinds of rules. Maybe grew up in a moral environment. You know, a legalistic environment, it makes you particularly susceptible to the lie that you don't need God. Because you're lulled into thinking that it's about external behavior and you don't see your need for God in your heart. Growing up in a legalistic environment is dangerous. I'd say it's actually probably more dangerous than growing up in an amoral environment in one sense in that it can lull you into thinking that your behavior is what saves you and that you're okay without God, that you're really not that bad. But the Apostle Paul wants nothing to do with that. And he says, no, you're... You're self-righteous. You've been conditioned to be self-sufficient. You believe the lie that says you can be righteous on your own. You believe the lie that you don't need God. And he writes to all the people like you and I. He says, if you're in a place where you don't feel the need to repent, if you feel like you're okay on your own, if, if, if you're morally superior, then listen up, he says. God's speaking directly to you, objectively to you through his word this morning. You might even convince yourself that, you know what, I've never done bad stuff. So why would I need Jesus? Maybe you can't outwardly admit that because you know the truth is that, you know, you know the truth, but you don't feel the truth. The problem might be you're ignoring God and, and you're happy and content on your own without him. And Paul says, if you keep doing this, you're going to prove that your heart is hard. And look down at verse 5. It says, because you're hard and impenitent heart, here's what happens. You actually store up wrath. You can be a very happy, moral person storing up the wrath of God. He says, on the day when, of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed. Religious and moral people need the gospel because moral people who don't repent store up God's wrath for themselves too. And then the second 
reason that self-righteous, moral, religious people need the gospel too. Paul tells us that because God's judgment is impartial. And you say, well, that's good. Well, no, it's not actually for us. It's bad news. God's judgment is impartial according to our works. Look in verses 6 through 11. He talks about how in in verse 6, he says, he will render to each one according to his works. And you think, wait a minute, that's not not what the gospel is. Well, well, actually, Paul explains the gospel is all about that, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Kind of scandalizes you when you think, wait a minute, he's going to render to each according to his works? It's really clear. It's really plain. He really means it. All throughout the Old Testament, God is a God who renders according to people's works. He says to render to each one according to his works. And you think, well, I, I guess that's okay because my works are pretty good. You know, if, if we go to court, I got, I, I got to sit in court with somebody a little while back, and um, it's interesting to see all the different cases that come up. And, and you're hoping that the judge is impartial in treating some of these cases because some people are dressed better than others. Some people come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some people um, speak more clearly, plainly, more eloquently than others. And I was sitting there looking at the big divide between all kinds of people and, and realizing, wait a minute, that they're all guilty of the same kind of thing. But I just hope the judge doesn't do what often in history judges have done, unfortunately, is is they take the person who's dressed more nicely, comes from a better social background, who speaks more clearly and eloquently, has better education, is more respectful. They take the exact same sin or law-breaking, and they judge it lighter than law-breaking from a person who's not like them, or who they can't relate to, or of a different color. And all of us know that that's unjust. All of us hope that, that judges won't judge like that, and we we rightly cry out for impartiality. And we, we want a judge to be impartial. And so Paul is responding to this objection and saying, well, I, God is impartial. He judges everybody on the basis of works. Everyone. And you think, hang on. You know, I, I don't really deserve to be punished because there's some extenuating circumstances. Like when I was sitting in court, I was listening to all the excuses and I had a hard time not laughing at a few of them. A few of the excuses as to why they did something bad. And we, we can excuse ourselves too. And we can say, well, there's some extenuating circumstances for why we did what was wrong. And Paul says, no, if you really want God to be impartial, then you're in a world of trouble. Because he is impartial and he judges on the basis of works. Couldn't be more clear. He renders to each one according to his works. So what does that mean? And you might be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, hang on. The gospel is not about works, is it? Well, in one sense, yes, because the righteousness of God is revealed in judging everyone who does not do good works. And so what he says is that if you don't do good works, apart from the good news of Jesus Christ, apart from the righteousness of Christ, apart from faith in him, you will be judged and all of you will be judged impartially and you'll all be found just as guilty. You know, who here can say that they've perfectly obeyed? Who here can say that they've perfectly done everything that God's required? 
Paul sets up the straw man argument. He says, if you persist in doing good and on loving honor, if you persist in loving glory and seeking eternal life, then you'll be rewarded with eternal life. And you think, wait a minute, Paul, aren't you preaching a gospel of works? So if I'm able to do what's right and good, then I can earn my salvation. And Paul, he's setting you up. And he's setting up this army saying, if you do what's perfect and right and good, if you do good and seek glory and honor immortality, then you're, you're rewarded with immortality. But you know that, wait a minute, Paul's not talking about a gospel of works because earlier in verse 16 and 17, he says that righteousness comes by faith. And then later on in chapter 3, he says that no one does good works. And so what he's telling all of us mortal religious, self-righteous people is that if you could do what's right, if you really were able to do perfect works, only motivated by the glory and honor of God and only motivated by living with Him in eternity, if you did works like that, then hypothetically, yes. But the problem is you're going to be judged by your own works. Every one of you. Everyone's going to stand before God on their own on the basis of what they've done with no escape. And if you, by patience, doing good works and seeking for glory and immortality and honor, he says, if you're seeking for eternal life, he's going to give you eternal life. The problem is we all know it's not true. It's not true for us. He says those who are self-seeking. You ever been self-seeking, by the way, in any way? You ever once broken the law of God? You ever once desired your own over somebody else's? You ever been selfishly ambitious? You ever been selfish? You know, even just something as, as small as wanting the biggest piece of cake when you're serving them up, you know? Because we've all done something like that, but I think we've all done far worse. He says, those who are self-seeking, who don't obey, he says, those people will have tribulation and distress. And that applies to every moral person here. No one is good. No one does what's right. No one's saved by their works. The implication could be argued, well, Paul's really arguing for that. You say, well, no, because even if you believe that, if you look at the context in verse 6, he's actually quoting a scripture. You may not know that, but he's quoting Psalm 62. Verse 6 is a direct quote of Psalm 62. He says, you'll be saved by good works. Well, what's the context there? We have Psalm 62 for you this morning. I want to look at it really quickly with you to get your context. If whenever scripture is quoting another scripture, by the way, and using it as an argument, it's a helpful thing to look back and say, okay, what scripture are they quoting? And what's the context of that scripture? Because a good Jew would have known Psalm 62 and they would have understood that. But most of us don't know Psalm 62 by heart, so we need to look at it. So let's look at Psalm 62. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He's my, only my rock and my salvation. My fortress shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down. And then it goes in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God's a refuge for us. And in verse 10, put no trust in extortion, set no hopes in Robbery, once God has spoken in verse 11, twice I've heard this, the power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you, here's the quote, will render to a man according to his work. So let me ask you, what's the work that David or the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 62? Look down your Bibles or look up on the screen. What's the work here? Well, we don't see any work. 
the work and the context is in verse 1, the psalmist waits in silence on God. In verse 2, it says he looks to God for salvation and trusts in him. In verse 5, he's waiting in silence, putting his hope and trust in God. In verse 6, he's, he says, he's only my rock and my salvation. In verse 7, he's resting in God and taking refuge in God. In verse 8, he's trusting in him at all times. In verse 11, he's trusting in God's power. What's the good work that this man is doing for which he's rendered according to his work? It's not really work at all, is it? That's the context. It's not really work at all. I love that how David Helms explains the psalm. He says he really isn't doing any works or anything at all. He's patiently waiting and trusting in the power of God to be manifested in salvation. The characteristic of our good work is rest, trust, faith, dependence, asking God to secure salvation for us. That's, that's the good work by which we're really saved. But if you continue in unrighteousness, if you continue to be moral and think you don't need God, you're going to face God's wrath. If you practice evil, no matter how seemingly nice, you're going to experience tribulation and distress. If you trust in yourself, you're not thankful to God, you don't acknowledge in God in your life, then, then God has something to say. He doesn't say that you're basically good. He says you're basically evil. And everybody, despite your heritage, despite your background, whether you've been raised in a good home or raised in a whatever background you think is the right background, you can ignore what God's saying. You can disagree with it. But God, the creator of all, who knows every human perfectly and rightly, God says is true. You know, you can pretend that the earth doesn't revolve around the sun. It doesn't make it not true. You can deny that there's a thing called gravity, but when you jump off a ledge, you're going to hit the ground. You can deny that you're evil inherently and that you're unable to do any works to earn God's favor. But you're still going to experience tribulation and distress, whether you believe it or not. And that's what Paul's getting at. You can claim that black is white and white is black. You can claim that two plus two equals nine, but it doesn't make it true. You can feel good about yourself and be hardening your heart. Because God's impartial. He's impartial. He doesn't play favorites at when he relates to his own. He's talking to Jews here. Think about his own very chosen people. And Paul says, you are deserving of God's wrath too because you're putting hope in your own morality, your own righteousness. You're putting hope in yourself. And I don't play favorites. He says, you know, God doesn't play favorites even with the Jews, his own chosen people. So don't think somehow because you're a good upright moral person that God somehow thinks yeah, you're okay it's just all these other people you know you're eating the shoulder meat you're okay and the last reason Paul says that self-righteous religious moral people need the gospel is that because God's judgment is fair you know you're thinking oh that's really good God's judgment's fair right we all want fairness or at least so we claim we all want fairness when it comes to other people at least we all want fairness when it comes to our rights being defended and he says, those who have the law will be judged by it. 
Meaning, if you have the law, you're going to be judged by the law. That's fair. But he says also, too, the person who might say, or you might say here, you know what, I'm not a, a Jew, so I shouldn't be judged by the Jewish law. Or maybe the people in Rome were saying, you know what, um, we, we don't have the law. We've never been given the law. Paul, how can God judge us according to the law? Or you might say, well, how could God be right to judge someone in the South America Amazon basin who, who, who's never heard the good news? How would God be right to judge them? They've not heard the law. And God says, I I judge fairly. I judge on the basis of works. Not merely hearing, but doing that matters. And he explains in verses 12 and 13, it's an explanation of verse 11. He says that God judges everybody equally and fairly. He's not like an earthly judge that might show favoritism for his or her political party that might accept a bribe. Gentiles won't be judged for failing to conform to the Jewish laws. That's what he's saying. He says, the Gentiles aren't going to be judged for failing to form the Jewish law. They have a, a law inside of them. God has placed the law on their hearts. And so whenever they do what's right and good, and they approve of it in their own conscience, they affirm that they know what's right. And their consciences either are a witness to affirm or excuse them. And they prove by their own actions that they either know the right thing or not, or doing the right thing or not. And so he says, Gentiles are not going to be fail, judged for failing to conform the Jewish laws they didn't have. They're going to be judged on the basis of, of the law that they understood that God had written on their hearts. If a Gentile sins not having the privilege of the law, they're going to be judged based on what they know. Let me ask you, um, do you have a moral code that you live by? Do you have an understanding of right and wrong? Paul is saying that everybody has been given this basic understanding. Now, in some cultures, that understanding differs because they've been hardened to different things. But there is this commonality, generally, that says that murder is wrong. Generally. Generally, stealing, generally, in most cultures, is wrong. There's some moral norms that go across all kinds of cultures, even those isolated from other people. They know that to hurt someone else without provocation is wrong. And, and Paul says that everyone, even with the morals they have, the, the knowledge they have in right and wrong, their understanding from right and wrong, no one even keeps their own standards. So God's fair. Because no one even keeps their own standards. Let me ask you, how many of you keep your own standards perfectly? You're always right, you're always good, you're always noble, you're always kind, you're always loving, you're always merciful, you're always gentle, patient, you always treat others like you want to be treated, you never get angry. You never hurt, you never take what's not rightfully yours. He says you're all going to be judged even on basis of your own morals. It's fair. If you haven't gotten the law, if you're not a Christian, if you don't understand, you've not heard the Bible before, fine. You're still going to be judged. God judges fairly. And he's going to go on the show in the next chapter that nobody, nobody does that. Nobody keeps their own, even their own moral code perfectly. In reality, their own moral code is a reflection of God's moral code, is what Paul's saying here. And then he says in verses 14 and 16, the Jews said it's not enough just to have the truth. The Jews thought, well, we are God's people. We have the truth, and so therefore we're better than people. And you think, well, um, I, know, I understand the gospel. I understand the good news of Jesus. I was raised in a church, and I, I, I believe that that's true. I don't trust in it. I don't really put my hope in it, but I know that, yes, I know about Jesus. I believe that there was Jesus. He was a, a real figure. I believe that God is, but... I don't put my hope in those things. Well, he says, you know, it's not enough to have the law and the truth. It's, it's not just hearers of the word 
that God's looking for. He's looking for doers of the word. He says, Gentiles are judged by their own law. Jews are judged by the law. Together, no one is, does what's right. And there may be some here who, who are living morally upright, and even if you're not trying to keep God's law, your conscience lets you know when you do something that's worthy of judgment. And we know we all want fairness, but not when it comes to us. We don't really want fairness when it comes to us, only when it works in our favor, not when we get what we deserve. We want fairness until God says, okay, if you want fairness, I'm going to judge everyone on the basis of works. And when you say, but, but, but hang on, understand there's some reasons why my works have not been perfect because I was raised in a different kind of home or I had these experiences or I had this background or these circumstances played on me. And, and so you have to understand why my works are not really okay and, you know, I'm weak. We all want fairness, but not when it comes to us getting what's fair. If we all got what is fair and what Paul's saying is why this is bad news because God judges fairly. That's not good for us. That's bad for us. That's bad news. Now, it's good in the sense that God is holy and we can trust him that he'll never be unfair. But that's bad because if we come to him on the basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of our own works, there's no hope. And so Paul here, he is driving towards this conclusion that we're all in serious trouble apart from Christ. And then he says in the end, look in verse 16. This is kind of scary. He talks about this day of judgment. He looks down there. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You might claim to be really good and moral and noble and right and true, but I guarantee I guarantee there is at least at least one secret or hidden area that maybe other people don't know about your heart where you've sinned. There may be even sins you've committed that are far worse than you ever want to admit. But it says that God's going to God knows your heart. That's what it means. It says God's going to judge perfectly based on all the hidden things of man. He's going to expose all those secrets. He's going to judge perfectly. All those secrets will be exposed. And no one can say God was unfair for judging me. No one can say that God was, was partial. No one can say that they're excused. It's what Paul is getting at. Because God's going to judge the secrets of men. And here's both bad and good news. He says, by Christ Jesus. Jesus is the perfect judge. He's going to judge everyone's sins perfectly. That's not good if we're trusting in our abilities. You know, if I can quote the entire DMV manual when I get pulled over for going 125 miles an hour, I don't think that the officer is going to be terribly impressed. Oh, that's really good. You know the DMV manual. Great, I'll let you off. You know what's right. You could tell me all the infractions that you committed before I pulled you over. You didn't signal when I pulled you over too. You can tell me that. That's really good. Great job. I'm letting you off. The, the, the police officer would be a little loony if he lets you go going 125 in a 35 mile an hour zone. We can't walk around in a dream world. The problem is we're not righteous. And so he's answering in this passage as well as last week's passage something that points back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
Let's go back there. This is what we need to go back to. This is what this whole verse refers back to. Um, This is the only problem with only preaching a passage at a time is that you're taking it out of where it lies in context, both before and after. But let's look back to what Paul's already told us. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It alone is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Not your works, but the good news is, why is the gospel good news? Because we're still judged by works as believers. That sounds crazy. Just not our works. Our faith, our hope is in the works of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith, our hope, our trust in him, God takes the works of Christ and he credits them completely to us. We are still judged by works. But our hope Our faith, our confidence, our rejoicing is that we're judged on the basis of the merit of Jesus' works. If our faith is in him and his works on our behalf and only in him, and we realize that any good that we do earns nothing, but you know what? He's earned everything. Then the gospel truly is good news, and the gospel really is the power of God for salvation. And thank God that we're judged on the basis of works because Jesus perfectly worked on our behalf. He perfectly obeyed. He perfectly kept God's law. And if we place our faith in him, God says, I'm going to credit all of Jesus' work to you and I'm going to see you as completely righteous. That's really good news. All of us inherently know that we really don't deserve that. That's good because it keeps us humble, it keeps us dependent, it keeps us from falling into the trap of self-righteousness and moralism and you know, moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, for in the gospel, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is that good news? Because God wants to rescue you from self-righteousness. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. If you placed your faith, your hope in Jesus, you're not condemned. If you are self-righteous at times, you are not condemned. If you, if you fall back into the trap of putting trust in your own morality, but yet you ultimately are trusting and hoping in the righteousness of Christ, you're not condemned. You will not experience the wrath of God. But you can still experience the effects of trusting in your own righteousness, which are horrible. You're going to live a yo-yo, and I don't mean like yo-yo, but I mean like a yo-yo up and down. Um, You're going to live an up and down life. When you're doing well, you're going to think, things are great, God's pleased with me. And then when you fail, you're going to think, oh, things are crud, God's angry with me. And you're going to vacillate between these highs and lows all the time as a believer. And God doesn't want you to be stuck there. If you trust in your own morality, you know what that's going to lead to? If, you, if, you, if you're trusting in your own legalism, your own ability to keep the law, you know what it's going to lead to? It's going to lead to dry, dead, empty, joyless life, if you call that much life. You're going to think, why do I lack joy? Why am I unhappy? Why am I down and discouraged? Maybe as a believer, that's you. Maybe you, you struggle with that. That's not the only reason, but this is a major reason, a cause for discouragement, despondency, despair. A major reason for depression is that you know you're not good enough. 
but yet you're not really hoping in the righteousness of Christ, and so you are despondent. You know that no matter how hard you tried, you failed yet again as a husband. You failed yet again as a mother and a father. You failed yet again to to be righteous and true and good. You failed to keep the law. And so you can get to the place if you're trusting your own righteousness. Suddenly we think, I'm no good. God must be unhappy with me. And you're joyless, passionless. Because you're ultimately saying, you know what? If I can't keep my own life, then, then no one can. If I can't, be acceptable to God, then I must be completely unacceptable. I've not been faithful, so you despair that you can never do it because you're really ultimately hoping in your ability to do it. A lot of us get stuck there. A lot of us get stuck with our ability to do the law, to make God happy, we think. And we think God's unhappy with us when when we can't keep the law perfectly, instead of saying, wait a minute, there's a righteousness that comes, but it comes by faith, but yet it comes by faith. I am made righteous. God is not unhappy with me generally. God is not angry with me any longer. God is pleased with me. He, he loves me and accepts me because of Jesus' righteousness that comes by faith. So when I fail yet again, I remind myself, yes, and that's the very reason why Jesus died. Yes, and Jesus condemned that sin, so I'm not condemned anymore. When I'm not perfect, you can admit, I'm not perfect and I would deserve wrath, but I don't get it because God says that he looks at me as perfect because of Jesus. And it can point you back to hope in the righteousness of Christ. So I hope this morning that you hate self-righteousness. If you're joyless, discouraged, turn to Jesus. Turn to put your faith, your hope in him. That he gives a righteousness, a right to stand before God blameless. He gives you the right to stand before God faultless. Faultless before the throne, you can stand. Before the holy God, you can actually confidently come and stand as faultless if you receive this righteousness by faith. That should be really good news to you. Unless you're trusting in your own self. Unless you think, oh, I've heard that before. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, who are lacking joy, lacking passion. Would we yet anew understand our unworthiness and then understand your great worthiness and then the worth that you give to us? That our worth comes from you and that you find us completely worthy in your sight because of Jesus. I pray that we would rejoice in this good news, this freedom that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we rejoice that there's no condemnation. I pray we rejoice that we can come before a holy God and be bold. I pray that we rejoice that we can receive mercy and grace in time of need. I pray that we rejoice that no matter what anybody says about us, we know the truth that we are righteous in Christ. I pray that we rejoice no matter how we feel, we can tell ourselves, remind ourselves what's true and right and good. And that is that our hope is in Jesus. Even when we don't feel like it, we're righteous in you. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us here that we would put off 
any self-reliance, any reliance on morality and self-righteousness. And we would trust wholly in you and experience true delight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.